a brief warning about the following episode of Lady History. This episode contains sensitive topics such as suicide and murder. If you or someone you love needs help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. To learn more, visit suicidepreventionhotline.org. I think my therapist is listening to our podcast. Wait, what? Really? Yeah, because I was looking at our like dem- like our listenership, and it said a bunch of people in Arlington, and I don't know that many people in Arlington. I know like my mom's, my parents' like family friend from my dad like went to high school with them, and then they introduced my parents, and like, we call her my Arlington mom. And so I was like, oh, maybe it's her, but that's too many people to just be her. And I think my therapist lives in Arlington, and I told her about this. So shout out, Dr. Sturman. I would love listening. Like, your next session. She's like, by the way, I don't listen to your like podcast, even though, and just like out herself from um, not super listening, but also listening because we just had this. I might bring it up. I'm seeing her on Tuesday, virtually, obviously, but I'm seeing hey, her on just, Tuesday. Just wondering, do you listen to my podcast? Well, I'm going to talk about how like, oh, I started my podcast and it's doing this, this, and this for my mental health. And I'd be like, then just see if she says she's listening. I feel like but she wouldn't, she, though. I feel like she wouldn't I don't just know if to, like... She would. Does that cross the, like, professional boundary? Yeah. Is that a HIPAA violation? Is it, though? It's a I public don't podcast. Well, none of us are in the medical field. No. You're Let not. us know. That's a definitive answer. But I Let us know. Hey, if you're in the medical field or are a certified therapist, please email us at ladyhistorypod at gmail.com and let us know if listening to your patient's <laughs> podcast violates HIPAA. <laughs> Thank you. In Thank advance. You. In advance. You can also email other stuff there. Don't, don't, yeah. you, you don't have to be a doctor to email us. <laughs> no, I also, I have a, because you can do asks on Tumblr. And I have our ask page for the Tumblr, ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. I have, you can suggest a lady. Please suggest ladies. I love that. Please suggest ladies to us at ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. You can also DM us. And as previously mentioned, if you DM the Instagram, that's Lexi. And if you DM the Twitter, that's me. And they're both at ladyhistorypod. We're going to plug that again at the end. So it's just a constant cycle. No one can slide into my DMs. I'll just use one of, if you want to slide into my DMs, use like the Twitter and just be like, this is for Sprinkle Bear McPussin Boots. And <laughs> okay, if you me. DM or email any of the accounts, if you need the message to go to Haley, please use that name only. Any message directed to Haley will not be given to her. We'll be like, who's Haley? <laughs> I so don't go even back. know what I said. I forgot. No, go back. Sprinkle Bear McPussin Boots, and yeah. I will never forget it. <laughs> Just go back, listen to that however many times you need to to get it in your brain, and then use that when you address Haley in any of your communication to our general inbox. Hang on. My light went away because I have to go uh, change <laughs> Haley's contact info in my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I really hate if, like, I'm interviewed for a job and they're like, so, Twinkle Bear McPussin Boots. Oh, uh, it was <laughs> Sprinkle Bear. get it right. Sprinkle Bear. <laughs> okay. Sprinkle. Sprinkle Bear. <laughs> I used to have a crush on Puss in Boots when Shrek first came out. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. 
I'm the next best thing to being in the same room as Lexi. Lexi, what's the name of your favorite plant? My favorite plant is probably a pothos. Just really cute, a cute plant, a good plant, grows well, grows well in my climate, has not failed me, has not died, so that is why I love the pothos. And also in the virtual studio is Haley. Haley, how's the weather? It's quite gloomy. I'm in San Francisco, so we're still dealing with the wildfires, but I think it's just Carl the Fog today. Carl the Fog? Yeah, the San Francisco, like, fog that just, like, looms over this Bay Area is called Carl. He even has, like, a Twitter, a whole kid's picture book, Carl the Fog. That's giving me an absolutely remarkable thing by Hank Green vibes. And also, oh, the SF uh, MoMA the new building of it is Carl the Fog. It doesn't, it looks kind of like a, like a old time steam iron, like on an ironing board, but it's like meant to be Carl the Fog or like blend in if Carl just mushes his way through San Francisco. Oh my God. Yes. That's incredible. Yes. And I'm Alana and I theme my canvas <laughs> tote bags based on event. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Solid. Thank you. So, can I tickle your taste buds with a fun fact? Oh, oh, tickle away. <laughs> so this is either going to be like the best thing I've ever created because like, let me just give you a side note. I thought of this joke while taking a shower and was cracking up for 10 minutes. <laughs> it's either, it's probably going to flop. But with this fun fact, it's kind of setting the mood for our crime theme and it's about the guillotine and the family of the guillotine Dr. Joseph, I think his name's like Ignace. It looks like Ignacio, but it's like uh, Ignace Guillotine was so horrified that like their family member invented such like a horrible thing. And if you don't know what the guillotine is, it is basically a big sharp knife that comes down from a pulley, will slice your head off, used in many executions, that they appealed to the French government to change the name. And the French government just took it to step higher and was like, no, we won't change the name, but we will make it one of like the official ways of executing people. More like to the point that the last execution was like in the 1970s. And this is like across Europe and at least for France, it was in 1977. So this is where it gets to my cringy joke because I've used this before. If you want a sick burn while your parents are talking about their childhood and they grew up in like the 60s, 70s, you can just go, Ugh, the land and time of the guillotine, such heathens. And I like this more than the, the burn that goes like when the dinosaurs roamed, because dinos just like didn't live when humans lived. And it always made me so mad where it's like, <laughs> I learned that the dinosaurs were born millions of years ago, but we have this like iconic execution machine that was used for so so long and no one like realizes that this was just used until the 70s as a humane way of execution which like I won't even get into that whole argument there's so much of a rabbit hole of whether the like guillotine was humane or not but it's just it's almost funnier because like it did happen this wasn't yeah. like an ironic like oh you're so old you're like a dinosaur this is like you were born when the guillotine was used. Because that's like a burn, but it's also true. Yeah, that's the worst kind of burn. That, I mean, the best kind of burn because it hurts the worst. 
I once said it to my dad because he was like talking about something when he was like younger and I was like the guillotine and he just looked at me and was like excuse me (laughs) I was like you lived during the time of the guillotine you heathen and he's like wow it's true because like he was like no that's like the middle ages and I was like let me school you on some facts and that actually is a great segue into my first gal all right let's go Haley uh, so my gal, like Artemisia, we have another one with her own movie. It's an unfortunate movie because I couldn't find it anywhere. But who am I talking about? Charlotte Corday. And other names include, and side note, I don't speak French. I speak Spanish. Please don't come after me with my horrible, horrible French pronunciations. I had my boyfriend who speaks some French pronounce them to me. Probably didn't remember anything that he said to me. But her other names are Corday d'Armand, Marie and Charlotte, and now for like a more modern name is Charlotte Corday the Assassin. So I love Charlotte as a topic because other podcasts like crime, history, women's studies have covered her to an extent. Like I, you'll see in the show notes that like I've even used her, thanks Encyclopedia Romantica. But on the other hand, not many people know about her. And they don't even know, like, her influence with the French Revolution. Because I've been in, like, many discussions about, like, history of crime or, like, the world history that we had to take. And I asked, like, about her. And my, even, like, my history teachers, like, I don't know who that is. And everyone just gave me that blank face. And I was like, wait a minute. This is weird. Why isn't this covered? So, of course, I'm going to cover it. And let's crack this case wide open before we do a deep dive and go over just like some historical background and some of the people I'll be talking about because I don't want you guys to be lost in this whole mumbo jumbo. So Charlotte was a Gordian sympathizer. Again, my French is not good. She came from a family of impoverished aristocrats from a little town outside of Paris, France. And as a noble family, she was given the opportunity to go to a formal education. But really this formal education came because her mother and one of her sisters died and her father was just so grief stricken and also just couldn't handle the now need to raise two daughters. So he sent them to a Roman Catholic convent so they could get a formal education. During this formal education of hers, She learned about French politics, history of France, and was able to mold her own theories and just ideas about the world around her. Thus, she became a French moderate Republican party member during 1791 and 1793. And this is during the French Revolution. I'm guessing that moderate Republican back then doesn't mean the same thing that moderate Republican means now. (laughs) No, not at all. I'll explain more. So that's, this is exactly why I wanted to do our whole kind of, let's see the players, let's name some names, and let's go over some history. Because just looking at her based on just the woman, it's very hard to understand why she's, one, seen as a hero, two, seen as a murderous assassin, which both are correct in a way. I mean, and then, goals. No, I'm just kidding. Right. You're not condoning murder? <laughs> no. So that's basically where she's at in the scope of where she grew up and what role she'll play in the French Revolution or what side she was on. And she's also mainly known for murdering Jordian Jean-Paul Marat. 
and he was on the other side. He was Jordian, so she was very opposed to his ideals. So again, like Alana said, is this kind of like what our U.S. politics is like? No, this isn't the Republican Party. However, we have two extreme sides and people on one extreme, people on another extreme. That is very much similar. And he was an outspoken leader of the French Revolution to the point where he was the founder of a popular journal, deputy of Paris to the convention, opposed legislation that would hurt the other side, empower him, and to Charlotte and other Jordian followers. So now that we cover the big picture ideas and we know the players and we know how extreme both these sides are, let's do our deep dive. She was committed to fighting the Gordianist side of the revolution, posing the radical Jacobian faction. So this was right before the reign of terror. And why I mention this is because her, all her actions were to stop a civil war and the reign of terror was a part of the French Revolution that kind of like started the first French Republic and culminated in a series of massacres and like many, many public executions. So this is what she tried to stop from like happening in French society. However, her whole story and what role she played in the revolution actually caused the reign of terror. So that's why for me as in high school was like, why aren't we talking about her? And now we're gonna talk about her now. So we come to the point where our victim Marat was continuing his train of like bloodshed and was responsible for utter catastrophe and putting a lot of lives in danger of like the front, like the French people were just terrified of him to an extent. And that's why Charlotte just hated him. He was seen as definitely one of the leaders of this one extreme side that had to be taken out. So that's exactly what she kind of planned to do. And she was not in Paris. She was still in another city outside of Paris, France. So Charlotte stabbed him while he was taking a bath. And that's really the punchline of like her whole story. If you do like a quick Google search, you'll get a lot of stuff for her. And even in some textbooks that I tried to look at, it was just like Charlotte Corday assassin stabbed Marat in the heart. Really, she stabbed him in a plan assassin while he was taking a bath. I'm going to just go through the accounts of this whole story because they're not really pieced together in one area. And I'm going to piece them together now so you can understand why he was like in a bathtub, why she stabbed him and so on. Cause this just sounds so strange. And it's really strange to see this as your history. So the planned assassin started because she wanted, like I said, to stop from a civil war happening in France. And she truly believed that to do this, you had to kill one of the leaders. And also to an extent, make the other side seem strong in that way. Like if you kill one of the leaders, you prove that the other side is just as strong or stronger. So she originally planned to kill him at a Bastille Day parade to make a huge show of it. And this was on July 14th, 1793. Unfortunately, or fortunately for her plans in a sense, the event was just like, it either didn't happen or it became apparent that Marat was not gonna be at that public event. So she quickly had to say, okay, what else can I do? How can, what will be the next step to kill him? On July 13th, so the day before this event was supposed to happen, she was able to get a meet and greet with him or just gain access to him 
by saying and promising to betray her political side and give some insider secrets, like name names, basically become a traitor. And Marat was like, cool, you're definitely high up in the Gregorian side of it. Let you like come into our area. We'll hold, like, we'll basically keep you hostage in a sense. Like that's the feel I got. Like Marat was also like, come to our side because if anything happens, you'll be on our turf. And she did. She was like, cool, great. You don't know I'm gonna kill you. You think I'm gonna come and like give you all my secrets and then you'll protect me in a way. So Marat was having this meeting in the bathtub, but this was a very normal occurrence for him because he had a terrible skin disease or infection that he would just be in the bath all the time. Like the water soothed him. So he was just very vulnerable, but that was his normal state. Like nothing was wrong with him taking a meeting in the tub. So like she could be alone with him. It would be more weird if they were just walking around in the streets together. And instead of having this whole conversation that Charlotte said she would, she took this knife out of her bodice that she was just like hiding there and stabbed him in the chest. He died almost immediately. And she actually waited for the police to come. She did not run away. She waited and confessed, essentially. She was proud of what she did. She wanted this assassination, like the public assassin assassination, to still have some sort of effect on the public to show that her side did it to the other side. She is responsible for Mar Marat and she did it as this political leader in a sense. So at the trial, she allegedly proclaimed, I killed one man to save 100,000. And she kept reiterating that this was in fact a planned assassination. This wasn't out of passion. She took some thought, even wrote down like accounts and like had this whole, I saw like some people called it a journal or like statement, different written statements, basically on her thoughts of an upcoming civil war and what she thought she was doing to help prevent that. She was also able before the trial she was able to write down, like write a letter and write her thoughts, feelings, concerns to her father. So her father was still alive and was able to get this kind of like last testimony of hers. And of course, during this trial, because she did essentially plead guilty, she was ordered to be executed via guillotine just four days after the murder. So July 17th, 1793. And another quote from a lawyer from all this whole trial came from, I think this was a man named Bergnad, but I couldn't find this quote as in from like a reputable source as yes, this was him. So it could have been just another lawyer, not this guy. However, someone at, as a witness to this whole trial and this whole ordeal, they said, she is leading us to our death but she is showing us how to die. And it was because he, as a lawyer, saw this whole thing, saw her whole plan, and knew, okay, this is gonna become a massive shit show. Like, this won't end well. She is not preventing a civil war. She actually just started a whole other battle. However, she is showing us how to die with dignity and showing how to, like, own up to the actions and just just die, essentially die, because a lot of people through the reign of terror did die. So you thought I'd be done. 
and I know this is going to be my longest, but this is such a great, great story. Because now we get into her overall death legacy. And we do know a lot of things, unlike Amelia Earhart, where we just don't know what happened to her after death. A lot of this we still have artifacts and evidence of. She overall became this French savior, like the savior of French society in her circle. Months after her death, there are just so many portraits of her in different scenarios, short hair, long hair. Like I needed to go back and make sure these were the same Charlotte Corday. And if there could have been multiple Charlottes, just to make sure that these images looked so vastly different. And it was because people wanted to show that she was just this holy woman and ladies now weren't the ones who are supposed to be stuck in the kitchen with raising the kids. They had the power to do something in life and in society, but they also had a spin on it. Like, like I said, she was seen as a savior or this holy woman, goddess-like. They even used her Christian name, so Marie Anne Charlotte, which she, to my knowledge and to my research, didn't necessarily go by that name, but they're definitely images of that name and her with very fair skin, white brunette hair, looking very womanly and accentuating her womanly features. So that really pissed off the other side. Like all Marat supporters, they were absolutely flabbergasted that she was getting such a reputation. They thought this can't be happening. She just murdered one of our political leaders and she was executed for it. Why is everyone trying to kind of put this holy cap on her? And Yes, that worked to an extent, like their outcry, because like, yes, she did murder someone, but it didn't help enough. And there were women in French society who did try to distance themselves from her and just her ideas of what women should be like. But Charlotte did such a good job at like the legend of her as a woman, even before she died, that it didn't matter. Like I read an article about whether she had blonde hair or chestnut brown hair from a 2004 academic article. Like this is still being discussed. And she had a part of her reputation. Like she knew that whether it started a civil war or not, she needed to form her own reputation. And there's even accounts that she witnessed the paintings and drawings of her that would be published and printed post-execution and she gave comments. She was like, no, 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 make me look more like a schoolgirl, or like make me more with curly hair. I don't really know the specifics, but it was documented that she would give kind of suggestions on how she would look like. So while she did, she tried so hard to like make herself look like this holy woman and yes, it did work. Marat, when he died, one of his very close friends Jacques-Louis David painted the classic portrait or classic image, not portrait, the death of Marat, which is capturing the scene of his death. And that is still a, considered like a classic image and like classic picture, from, especially from the French Revolution. So I don't, I don't wanna go as far as saying either Charlotte's portrayed as this holy one or this heinous murderous like scoundrel because both of them have lasted to this point in history that no one can make up their mind whether this was like a good thing that happened or a bad thing that happened. 
And I don't even, I don't even want to put out like in the universe, whether we should have the discussion, if we should say like, yes or no, I just want to give you the facts and let you kind of like decide. But that is Charlotte Corday. She's very interesting. Yeah, that's real cool. That's fun. That was a good transition for from the guillotine to yes, good choice, to Charlotte Corday. I'm glad we let you go first. Yes, very good. <laughs> Alana, hit us, hit us with it. Don't hit us, please. Don't hit me. I won't hit you. Um, okay, so I will be talking about Julia Tofana. Um, oh, Haley's face! I'm so excited. I feel like I hope I do this justice. Oh no, she is Julia, but it's spelled G-I-U because she's Italian. Okay. So I like to give credit, as we've seen in the past, to like where I have first found out about my stories. Um, and so I first found out about Miss Tofana. I should, I should call her Julia, not Miss Tofana, because there's another Tofana. Her mother's name is also Tofana. Uh, I heard about this for the first time on What? W-U-T, which is another great edutainment podcast by women. I'm going to promo them without needing a sponsorship or a collab because women supporting women. So if you like us, go check them out. That was fun. They're not specifically women's history. They're just kind of fun facts in general. So not as niche as us, but still pretty cool. And then I heard about that podcast from my friend Jesse on Twitter. I think we're friends. I don't know. I think we're friends. Um, so shout out to Jesse. <laughs> so. Julia Tofana, G-I-U, because she's Italian, lived in the 17th century. Exact dates are kind of weird because she was a woman and not high-born. Best guess, she was born in Palermo in Sicily. Her mother was executed for poisoning her father, possibly because he was abusive. This is a th- like a running theme that we'll see later. Also, later, Julia's husband died mysteriously probably also poison, probably also abusive. So she moved to Rome at some point in the 1630s-ish, probably, as a widow with her daughter to sell cosmetics and be apothecaries and poison people. Dun-dun-dun! So women in the 17th century have so many options. They can be sex workers. They can be essentially auctioned off to almost always abusive older men. And then later, if their husbands died, become respected widows. Those are your options. So many. So many options. What, how are you going to pick so many things? The amount of choices is staggering. Paralyzed by choice, really. My sources call these women aspiring widows as if they're gold diggers and not battered women with no escape. I love, I love that Like my running theme is criticizing my sources. That's my thing. Julia crafted essentially her own poison, created her own poison. Or like by all accounts, she was the one who came up with this. Between like her and her mother and her daughter, they came up with this poison called Aqua Tofana, named after her. It's a combination of arsenic and belladonna and lead, which are things that are already in cosmetics at the time, but not quite lethal, still have problems, but not lethal unless they're ingested. And so having these things on a vanity looks totally normal. And so Julia, as someone who experienced abuse, who had watched her mother get executed for defending herself, essentially, 
I'm not condoning murder. And I know it's never good to say something at the beginning of a sentence, like I'm not condoning murder and then doing but. I feel like there are no options. Self-defense. Self-defense. And it seems very clear. Again, we don't know the whole situation, but it seems very clear that she was in a bad situation. A bad situation. Yeah. We're not the judge, jury, or the executioner. So we can't say. So she having probably been abused and having watched her mother probably been abused and watched her mother get executed for essentially defending herself, she's going to help these other women get out of their marriages in such a way that it can't be traced. Because this poisoning with this mixture of belladonna and arsenic and lead, it takes really long for someone to die. Really long is like two to three days. But it also looks like natural causes or another illness, which always happened in the 1600s. People got sick and died, and that was just normal. And it gave these men time to get their affairs in order and confess their sins. And in a very Catholic area, at a very Catholic time, you like automatically got into heaven as long as you confessed your sins. So since these people had time to confess their sins, our murderess wouldn't have to feel so guilty that she was condemning her husband to hell even though he was probably hurting her it only takes four to six drops to kill someone depending on their size and all of that other stuff another side fact side fun fact mozart who nobody knows how mozart died mozart wholeheartedly believed that he was poisoned with aqua tofana but nobody knows I feel so good that Haley is just nodding fervently. I feel like I'm doing a good job. Thank you for that. I've awkwardly read so much on arsenic poisoning. Just so much so. But yes, you are correct. There are probably so many people who died of arsenic poison in the 1600s because autopsies weren't like what we have today where you can do a toxicology. So, so many people would seem like they were getting ill because a lot of the times it just looks like a common cold or flu-like symptoms. They just weren't feeling good, but then they would die. So now people will do toxicology because it's a 30-year-old man with no pre-existing conditions. But when you're talking about it in the 1600s, it's like, oh, they got sick. We don't have modern medicine to help out. Nobody knows what's happening, essentially. It's like, oh no, another person got sick. So Julia Tofana sold this with her daughter and some employees at this family business, essentially, which is a weird way to think about it, that the family business is murder. They operated like this for about 50 years, for decades. And at least the estimated number is something like 600 plus people died because she sold their wives poison. But she got caught. And legend has it, and there are so many foggy details that this seems way too specific. So I think like somebody exaggerated, but one of her clients who had bought the aqua tofana to poison her husband had poisoned a bowl of soup, but decided, no, I can't. I can't kill someone and dramatically knocked it out of his hand. And that's where I am thinking this, somebody exaggerated, somebody made this up because that's way too specific. But she stopped her husband from eating the soup and confessed her crimes and turned in Julia Tofana and her daughter and their three employees at the business. And all of them were executed. Under torture, of course. It's the 17th century. 
she turned on a bunch of her clients as well. So a bunch of her clients were also executed. Some of them were not executed because they claimed that they didn't know that it was poison. And it was just, oh no, I spilled some of my lotion in my husband's soup. Oops, oopsie poopsies, I'm only like 14. I don't know any better. I made myself laugh with that one, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, But those people were spared. So there is something to, was Julia a hero? Was she a murderess? Could both of those things be true? Was she an anti-hero? She's kind of an anti-hero. I think that's what we're going for I like that Yeah, I think, I also think- Like a Robin Hood, but murder. Batman, but murder. Does that mean kill people? Robin Hood stole things. He didn't kill anyone. So she's like the Robin Hood murdering people? Sure. It's like- Murder the rich give Vigilante. I don't know. Vigilante. Vigilante murder, yeah. So far we're on the track of like, our criminals are good question mark. <laughs> mine mine was definitely a criminal, but we'll get into that. <laughs> well, I am done. So, Lexi, let's get into that. What a segue. Okay. So, my lady, though definitely also had a lot of background trauma as it seems that a lot of these ladies had, definitely did crime. So, we'll just jump in. Have have you guys ever heard of the Queen of the Mob? Yes. I'm so excited that you're doing this one. Maybe. You okay. have to, you'll have to tell me her name. This is okay. truly, like, my favorite episode so far. And I, like, hate when people, like, get really into criminals. Like, some people, like, for Jeffrey Dahmer, like, love him, think he's, like, the most beautiful man. Same with Ted Bundy. And that's, like, not where my head is at. That's I creepy. I have a true fascination with the history of crime, death. medicine and like how our society perceives it now like when i say i love these people or i love these stories that is not where i'm going for you're not doing the whole crime fandom crush thing no i have seen people get like ted bundy jeffrey dahmer's signatures tattooed on themselves that's creepy no and i don't condone that no we don't like that But you can be interested in crime, especially because as someone who is taking courses in the forensic realm yes. um, and who likes bones and, and likes that kind of thing, All this I think you can be interested in the human phenomenon. Yes. As academics, That's not as fanatics. Yes, yes. As <laughs> listening to like this, like you guys speak and like kind of going back in my head, I'm like, oh, I seem like such a psycho. And I'm like, I love Charlotte. Like she... Is just a fascinating human. <laughs> well, now we which clarified, she also which is good. Assassinated someone, <laughs> and assassinations aren't swell. But like, when you think about like what is interesting on TV or like what is interesting in our fiction, it's because humans have a general interest. Yeah. So, I want so to write a whole paper on that. Just truly that <laughs> whole concept. So, the Queen of the Mob, Virginia Hill. You can learn about her at the Mob Museum. People are really, really fascinated with her, and her story is really interesting. And she was born on August 26, 1916, in a place called Lipscomb, Alabama. I might have said that wrong. You know, general general reminder, I say things wrong sometimes. She was born on her father's horse farm. Her father was abusive, and he actually beat her and her siblings when they were children. And one day she got really fed up with him attacking her and her little siblings, so she hit him with a hot skillet in self-defense. At the age of 14, Virginia married a man named George, and three years later, the couple moved to Chicago. 
when they got there, she dumped him because she realized the world was a lot bigger than her hometown in Alabama. And so 17-year-old Virginia wanted to start her life anew. At the time, the 1933 Chicago Century of Progress Exposition, which was a World's Fair style event, and it was conceived to bring hope in the wake of the Great Depression, that was happening. So Virginia took a job dancing, like as a shimmy dancer. So she had a really what? unique. Oh, what what does shimmy dancer mean? Like a um, go-go dancer? Like a strip? Like what? I think what? you dance shimmy, like you shake back and forth, and you wear tassels. I believe. Dream job. But yeah, someone I was feel free to one correct of those me. 1920s cigarette girls. Yeah, that could that probably be like, it because this is a similar era. Like they would have like the thing that went over them holding a pl- platter, like tray that they would just like walk around, dance around, and you can buy stuff from them. Yeah, it could possibly be akin to that. When the fair ended, Virginia became a waitress at one of Al Capone's old haunts, the San Carlo Italian Village, which is a restaurant, not a town. I had to Google that. Though Capone was at that time in prison, he went into prison in 1931, the community of criminals that he had built was still thriving, and it was, it was in this role as a waitress serving tables of America's mobsters that Virginia met the man who would change her life. His name was Joe Epstein. He was an accountant and bookkeeper for Capone's crime family, and he took a liking to Virginia's style. And that doesn't mean, like, her physical attractiveness. Um, She had a certain style of a way that she talked to the mobsters, and she seemed to really have, like, a no-nonsense kind of ability to deal with the mobsters, which is really unique in a girl so young. So he felt he could trust her, and he took her on as a money launderer for his racketeering. She laundered the money by placing large bets on horses in Chicago's racetracks. She later moved into betting scams, which was basically when she learned how from Joe to collect bets on fixed boxing matches. So the matches would be predetermined, but she would encourage people to bet the losing side. Virginia didn't just launder money. Joe taught her how to dress and act like a rich woman and used her to cross state lines with stolen furs, jewels, and other items. Because, of course, no one would suspect a nice, rich lady of stealing things and crossing state lines with them. The craziest part is that this all happened before Virginia even turned 20. So by the age of 20, she was wearing really wealthy clothes, working in really wealthy circles, and basically was a part of the mob. Over time, Hill became a trusted cash carrier, money launderer, and information gatherer for Joe and the rest of Capone's crew. She had many rich boyfriends and often used these relationships to benefit her mom family. In one instance, she dated an oil tycoon named Major Riddle. And no, you cannot make up this name. And yes, I wrote in my script, pause for insane laughter, but no one is laughing. <laughs> I think his name is hilarious. No, that's Major the Riddle. best name ever. We're on mute. We're on mute. Lexi, that's why we're not laughing. You didn't, they won't be able to see the face that I made. Yeah, that's true. I forgot. Well, anyway, she dated this oil tycoon, Mr. Riddle, and she convinced him to give her money for investments that were, like, completely fake. And she took that money back to her boy, Joe. And Hill used her womanly charm, and by that, it means she seduced men. And through these methods, she was able to obtain valuable information for her mob bros. Joe encouraged Virginia to move out east to build connections between the Chicago and New York crime syndicates. In New York, she laundered money and met many more men, including a Mexican nightclub dancer named, excuse my pronunciation if this is wrong, I believe it is Miguelito Valdez. 
At some point, Virginia married Valdez to help him maintain his residence in the United States. And then Virginia, at the same time as this marriage, had an on and off affair with Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, who is a really famous leader in organized crime. The pair is well known to have real chemistry. So this wasn't just considered to be a case of her seducing someone. They think that she genuinely liked him. And unfortunately, at the time, Bugsy was married to another woman. In 1940, he was sent to jail on a murder charge. While Bugsy was in jail, Virginia tricked Valdez into signing divorce papers, and it was all very 90-day fiancé of her, if you ask me. It is unclear if it was through her marriage or not, but at some point, Virginia had become very fluent in Spanish. She used her newly found language skills to begin trafficking drugs, particularly heroin, from Mexico to Chicago. In the 1940s, she attempted to start a career acting in Hollywood while transferring cash from New York to Chicago to L.A. Meanwhile, Bugsy was setting up his new crime life in Las Vegas, which he believed was the new up-and-coming resort destination for Americans, and in hindsight, he was probably right. He wanted Virginia to join him, and she did, but mainly only to spy on his activities and report them back to other mob leaders like Joe. Unfortunately, Bugsy's Vegas dreams were dashed when his resort project, The Flamingo, failed. He had drowned too much money into elaborate improvements to the resort and lost cash when lucky winners struck it big in his casino. In a desperate attempt to save the business, he closed the casino and reopened the Flamingo as a hotel only, which sadly was unsuccessful because we all know how Vegas went. Hill received orders to leave Las Vegas, so she did. Twelve days later, someone shot Bugsy dead in their home. In 1950, Virginia went to a ski resort in Idaho, which I didn't know you could ski in Idaho. Apparently you can. And she fell in love with a foreign instructor named Hans Hauser. Again, very 90-day fiancé of her. Though at the time she was still laundering money and Hauser was not a criminal, he still wanted to marry her. The couple eloped and had a son named Peter. Later that year, Virginia was subpoenaed to appear in a trial on organized crime, which would be shown on national TV. She arrived like a star dressed from head to toe in expensive clothing and jewelry. As a witness, she served her crime family well, evading details and giving vague, basic answers to in-depth questions. She used creative lies to explain away all the cash she had laundered, explaining how she had bet money on horses to win her initial cash. She also insisted that most of her wealth came from gifts of suitors, or as we would probably call them today, her sugar daddies. Now, quick side note, this kind of gives me vibes of the musical Chicago and that song where the main character is giving testimony, where she basically used her charm and virtue as a woman to get out of murder. Well, I can't help it, sir. I'm just so beautiful. Men flock to me and give me free things. On the stand, Virginia denied that her male friends and lovers were racketeers. When the investigators caught her in her lies, she simply denied knowledge of the nature of their work. But I never knew anything about their business, she would say. She denied her ability to have any financial knowledge, you know, because she was a lady and ladies don't do money things. Ladies don't money. Ladies never women, money. Women be shopping, but women don't be money. Mm-mm. I love the comparison, like, this whole story, because this is so much like Charlotte. She, both of these ladies are trying to be like, oh, women do this. This is how women look. Look how beautiful we are. That's the vibe. That's the vibe she was going for. The investigators were still suspicious, though. It did not work because, you know, it was about to be the 60s. I mean, it was the 50s, but it was about to be the 60s. And so women were going to be liberated. As Virginia left the trial, she cursed out the press and she punched a reporter in the face. Then, as she got in her car, she told the reporter she hoped an atomic bomb would be dropped on them, which I think is a timely thing to say. This was right after World War II. That's, that's a big insult. That's really mean. 
Virginia and Hans then realized that they needed to leave America, so they moved to Europe. The IRS was still on Virginia's tail, and she knew she could not return to the States ever again. She met up with her old boyfriends and colleagues while they were in Europe, and it was clear she still received money from her life's consistent characters, like Joe. In the 1960s, Virginia and her family settled in Austria, and her mental health rapidly declined. Virginia had suffered with her mental health through most of her life, getting hooked on sleeping pills and almost dying from a sleeping pill overdose on at least one occasion. Her life was turbulent, her trauma was intense, and she survived at least three separate suicide attempts. On a cold winter's day, March 24, 1966, in Austria, Virginia took her own life. Pedestrians taking a walk along the water found her body laying in the snow, along with a note that stated the reason for her death, I am tired of life. Her husband, Hans, also took his own life, passing in 1974. Their son, Peter, who would go on to become an American soldier and a veteran of the Vietnam War, died in a car accident 20 years later. The family is buried together in Salzburg, Austria. To this day, some crime enthusiasts believe that Virginia may have been murdered, force-fed sleeping pills as a method to hide a murder as a suicide of someone with a history of mental illness, though her apparent struggles with her mental health throughout her life really suggest this theory is unlikely. I think Virginia can teach us a lot. For starters, I think the importance of mental health help is something her legacy can teach us. Virginia had a horrible childhood, and instead of getting help she needed, she was married off, and eventually, she was convinced to do crime. She spent a lot of her life struggling, and it is possible some of her mental health issues stem from that early trauma. I think Virginia also teaches us that it took more than men to make the mobs of early and mid-century America function. Virginia was often called the mistress of the mob, but that's not fair. She wasn't a mistress of the mob. She was a member of the mob. Women, both those whose stories are recorded and those whose stories were forgotten, played central roles in organized crime. So maybe next time you think about famous figures like Al Capone, think of the women like Virginia Hill, who supported the crimes too. And that's why we cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of women's history, because there are so many stories that go untold. That was so beautiful. That was mind-blowing. Thank you. I'm going to leave in you guys calling it beautiful, too. That was incredible. <laughs> I really thought about that really hard. Holy I shit. truly love that, like, all our stories had a moral at the be- like at the ending. For Alana, was also just like, you have to face that you're a killer that's a no-no and like Lexi here with mental health and then me being like it's not all black and white you're both bad people nuance and context is like my mantra these days that's academics yes nuance and context as academics as people who studied at a university (laughs) oh my I have a bachelor's degree Mm. Mm -hmm. is this podcast just proof to your parents that you got a bachelor's degree no they paid for it they know. They, they know. Remember. They suffered. <laughs> you can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Lexi B. Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, we're going to be in the kitchen cooking up some great stories about famous women chefs and cooks alike. Where we belong. In the kitchen. Slash S.